0: Tenako nō my hide my welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Tonight, his filmmakers were granted a special exemption to enter New Zealand despite our closed borders. Avatar's Oscar-winning producer tells us how he got back in.
1: I don't think that we received special, you know, compensation. I think we approached it, you know, um, early, uh, responsibly.
0: Then, the new head of the police says he's open to making an apology to Māori communities over the armed response team trial. If
2: Māori communities believe an apology is due, um, I'm happy to mend whatever bridges need to be mended.
0: That story shortly. Production is set to restart on the Avatar sequel after more than 30 foreign workers ended their mandatory quarantine period at a Wellington hotel. The filmmakers were granted special permission to enter New Zealand despite our closed borders, but they were in a small minority of people allowed to enter on economic grounds, which led some to accuse the government of giving special treatment to a glamorous industry. John Landau is the Avatar series producer. He won an Oscar for producing Titanic. I joined him in his first few minutes of freedom from quarantine. And I asked him why he and his team were so keen to get back to New Zealand.
1: We were keen on several different levels. Um, Number one, you know, I think that New Zealand is my second home, Jim's truly first home. And we see our rolling back into production as a big boom for the economy here. That we are able to come here and by bringing a very select small group of people um, ABLE TO EMPLOY OVER 400 PEOPLE, uh, GO TO WORK AND, and, and INVEST 70-PLUS MILLION DOLLARS IN THE NEXT FIVE MONTHS IN OUR FILM SECTOR. Um, AND THAT that WAS ONE OF THE THINGS. NOW, SELFISHLY, WE WANTED TO GET ON WITH AVATAR. SELFISHLY, WE HAVE uh, A FILM THAT WE NEED TO COMPLETE LIVE ACTION FILMING. WE WERE SCHEDULED TO COME BACK DOWN HERE uh, IN, YOU KNOW, MARCH, WHEN EVERYTHING GOT SHUT DOWN. Uh, SO we're, WE WERE EAGER TO COME BACK. Uh, and we're, we're proud of how our Avatar family here has handled the pandemic and welcomed us and, and ready for us to, to, to come out.
0: How has the pandemic affected your, your schedule for Avatar?
1: You know, we sat there and uh, we, we adjusted things. We, we worked remotely, we tried to get ahead of the curve. We ended up with about 200 and some odd people working remotely in Los Angeles, mm. uh, working on the visual effects side of the movie. Uh, we continue to do reviews with Weta Digital even here, while we were in isolation, thanks to technology, Jim and I were on calls with Joe LaTerry from Weta Digital and the team there looking at the incredible work they're doing on the film. And our being able to do that has been able to keep Weta employed. So that, that's great as well.
0: So it's worth the hassle, I guess that's what I'm asking, knowing that you have to go through quarantine and, and you know, various different government departments and that sort of thing. It's worth it just to get down here.
1: You know, I think it's worth it to go through whatever we had to 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 come back here. Um, I think that thanks to uh, the leadership here in New Zealand and to the commitment by the the people. I mean, it can't work any one side, it's got to work both together. Uh, They've created an opportunity where Avatar could come back down, um, and in some ways, we could be the testing ground, Um, not just for our industry, but for as a whole of how do you allow. Uh, you know, essential workers to come in and invigorate the economy. And having gone through what we've now gone through in terms of our managed isolation, we've proven that it can be done. Uh, We took it upon ourselves uh, before we left to take this very seriously. And we asked everybody to self-isolate for eight days before coming down here. We had everybody do a full COVID test before getting on the plane to come down. And then coming down on the plane, we practiced all of the, the, the hygiene that we were told, PPE, face mm. masks, face shields, all the way through our check-in until we got into isolation in our rooms. And I think it's a good learning process that it, that it can be done, not just for people mm. here, but for others who might have an opportunity to come here and to help the economy get back on its feet.
0: How did you actually go about being granted access?
1: Uh, you know we went through the 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 channels that uh, we were told we worked with the film commission that that was very uh, helpful Uh, we made a formal request uh, to to minister twyford's office about uh, what it would mean about how we would reduce our numbers from what we had in the past how we were only bringing in people that had institutional knowledge that would allow us to get the work going Uh, none of the jobs we were bringing down of these essential workers took away any job Mm. here they just created the ability for jobs and um, we said we're willing to go through your self-isolation. We said we're going to take these extra steps because we want to.
0: Right. Um, So it was was Minister Twyford? It was Minister Twyford's office, yes. And and how long did it take for that decision to be made once you made your application?
1: We submitted a letter to Minister Twyford's office um, making a formal request for us to be allowed to come down. We waited I would say about a week uh, to, to finally hear back. Uh, that it looked like it was going to work, and then we had to go through all of the detailed specifics that Bridget York, our associate producer here, had to work out Mm. with the health ministry and and others to make sure that we were following every guideline Mm. to the T. We didn't want to vary at all. We were committed to doing what was asked.
0: Had the minister's office given you some criteria that you had to meet in order to prove your economic value to New Zealand?
1: Uh, we were not given a specific criteria to meet. Right. Uh, we presented um, you know, what we thought were very salient points that were very important, the number of people that we were going to be able mm. to hire, the impact that it would have not just on the film industry, but the film industry spending is very diverse, whether it's in hotels, whether it's in restaurants, whether it's at the lumber mill, it's not any one specific quadrant. And that impact has a long-lasting effect on the economy. Mm. Uh, Also if we could prove that we could do it for ourselves in our industry, it would open up up, other opportunities. Mm. And I think in some ways how our whole process has been managed has what has enabled things like the America's Cup. And I think everybody feels comfortable, so hopefully we've opened the doors for others to do the same thing.
0: It's interesting the, the guidelines which allowed for exclusions to the border mm-hmm. rules for economic reasons were only introduced after your application was made. So there will be people who look at your case and say that your crew has been given special treatment. Why shouldn't you have to follow the same rules that everyone else has to follow?
1: Look, I can't speak to the government rules. I don't know the specifics. I think what people have to look at is the broader picture
0: mm.
1: that, you know, COVID is new. No one knew for you know, how to plan for it, how to handle it, how long it was gonna last, how long it wasn't gonna last. Mm. But I think that people have a responsibility to try and get people responsibly and safely back out into the world uh, to socialize and to build the economy. Mm. I think that we presented a very unique opportunity. Um, Our filming is not location based. We have all of our work done at a a studio. We are creating our own private bubble there just from a safety Mm. protocol. So I think in looking at what we were bringing in and how we were looking to do it, it was right in line with the philosophy of how the government was approaching everything else. And um, I, I can't speak to the timing of what was going on here, but I think they really saw this and our approach to it as something that um was as protective of the the covid response Mm. that you've had as anybody could possibly be
0: there would just be many people who who are frustrated that that you have been allowed in when they compare your situation to their own situation i think of for example people who uh, own businesses and pay tax in new zealand Mm but have been denied access to New Zealand repeatedly because they're stuck in Australia at the moment or something like that. What do you have to say to those kinds
3: of comparisons?
0: You know, again, I think everything has to be evaluated on an individual basis. Yeah.
1: I think uh, that the government has to do what they think is best to protect the population, the 5 million people who live here from, from COVID. Um, and I think they've set up criteria. I don't think that we received special you know, compensation I think we approached it you know, um, early, uh, responsibly, and I think as an industry as a whole,
0: the film industry did this. Yeah, I see you got a bit of flack on social media, there were reports about you being at local shops and at the supermarket, what was that like to observe from your hotel room?
1: That, that was very odd because we were trapped here, we were, no one left their rooms. We couldn't intermingle with each other, let alone go outside. Uh, There are people that have been in other managed self-isolations that have been able, because the property allows it, to go outside on a deck for a walk and these other things. Mm. We couldn't do anything like that. The other thing, I just want to circle back on a second. Um, Managed isolation is not new to Avatar. Mm. The country was doing managed isolation before that, for, you know, patriots who could come back into the country. So it was a process that existed. Um, So it wasn't creating something new. It was opening something that existed up for a different type of person that would have an economic impact Mm. to the community.
0: Did Jim isolate here or on his farm?
1: No, No, Jim was not allowed to isolate on his farm. Jim, Jim, Jim isolated in the same one floor above me in, in, in the same type of hotel room that, that I isolated in.
0: I have to ask you about the, um, when, when you checked in, there were reports that uh, some of your crew came into close contact with some of the other guests in the hotels. What, what can you tell me about that?
1: You know, what, what I can tell you about the close contact reports, personally, I would have found it hard to believe because of how I was mm. administered in the process. We arrived on a bus outside the hotel, we broke down to smaller groups. I believe it was eight of us escorted in by ourselves, followed, surrounded by people, shepherded in to a private room on the lobby floor where there were government officials who were checking us in, all at separate socially distanced desks. Um, before we left that room, uh, we were giving a speech by uh, one of the fire officials about the safeties of, of staying in a hotel and what it meant and what we could have in our room, what we couldn't mm-hmm. have in our room and then we were escorted directly to the elevator, put one person at a time into the elevator to go up to our room, opened our door, and that was it. So how these interactions possibly could have occurred, it's hard for me to see.
0: John Landau, after the break, I asked him about those tax breaks for making movies here. Plus, police have scrapped the armed response teams, but we still have questions about the process. Why did police Respond to a white supremacist attack by putting armed police into predominantly Maori and Pacifica communities. Kia ora, e te Welcome back to Q and A. Filmmakers did well in this year's budget with the government boosting the tax rebate available for international and domestic productions. Here's the second part of our conversation with Avatar producer John Landau. Can you tell us a little bit more about the economic benefits for New Zealand in having your production here?
1: You know, I think the economics for New Zealand of our production here is that this one production alone is going to hire over 400 New Zealanders to work on it. We're going to spend in the next five months alone over 70 million dollars here. And that's going to allow us to continue to spend millions of dollars a month after that Mm. for the next several years. But more importantly, our starting back here is a signal to other films that they, too, can return in the future to work here safely if they go through a managed process of the isolation, and other businesses that might not have thought of coming to New Zealand before. Thanks to the, the leadership of, of, of the country and thanks to its curbing of COVID, I think the opportunities are immense, and we are just the wedge in the door that hopefully unlocks a lot for the economy.
0: So, COVID-19 could be an opportunity of sorts. I, I
1: think I think your country has made it an opportunity already. I think its influence on the world stage, having come from the states, having read yeah. the articles, you're, you're, we're reading about what what people are doing here, how, how the. Populace is living, how they're adapting. We we read these stories that didn't exist that much before. Now New Zealand is a story and, and I think that's a really great thing for the country.
0: The government here has boosted the available rebate for international filmmakers in New Zealand to $140 million. How much do you expect to save with the help of the rebate?
1: You know, again, I can't quantify the exact amount of it, but, but the rebate yeah.
0: millions is... Millions or tens of millions? It, it's
1: it's tens, t- definitely tens of millions of dollars. We're spending a tremendous amount of money here.
0: Would it be hundreds of millions?
1: Uh, I don't know that it would be hundreds of millions, but it's definitely tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, I think that um, what the, the it, rebate is an incentive that might get somebody here the first time. And it certainly played a factor in our decision to come here the first time. It was We were trying to figure out the budget and how to get here, and it was an incentive. Mm. But what brought us back are the people that we've met here, the artisans, the passion they have, the technology that they're willing to learn and adopt. We are very technologically advanced shows. We don't view any of our technology as proprietary. We want it to be shared. And there are people here who embrace the learning of that and then, in their own, are able to push the technology ahead, not just in the film industry, but there's applications to the technologies we're doing in other industries that fuel other things, which is exciting.
0: So, so the rebate helped to bring you here in the first place. That's not what keeps you here. But would filmmaking, on your scale, be possible in New Zealand without the rebate?
1: I, I do not think on mass, to sustain an industry long term that the film industry would be possible without the rebate. I just think there are too many other international locales that are competing for that same business. And again, that's because, in large part, because of the economic impact and the diversity of the spending of the film industry. Um, but there are, there are, you know, Canada, Europe, Australia, mm. these other countries, they have huge, sometimes larger rebates than are here. Mm. Um, but, but we feel that for us, even though we might have been able to do the movie more cost-effectively based on a rebate somewhere else, uh, we came back because of the people um, and because you know, of our belief in, in New Zealand. As I said, you know, my second home, Jim's first home.
0: What's it like then, sitting here at a time like this, watching the death toll in the United States pass 100,000 from this virus?
1: It's very sad. It's very sad, and in the states where where I just came from, where my wife is now, um, she'll she'll go out to run a quick errand and she'll see people who aren't social distancing, people who don't have masks on, yet the numbers in the state keep going up. Mm. If we had curbed them, maybe be in your position where we don't have to. Our crew was able to go out today and not put on masks. Because of the commitment that people had to follow that, we don't have that and and, and it's very sad and it's scary to see uh, because you know we don't it's it, it's going to get worse before it gets better, I believe, just because people have dropped their guard down, mm. and you know we, we we can't in our own personal bubbles allow that to happen
0: so you've been locked in a hotel room for two weeks, you haven't been able to walk down the street, what is the first thing that you want to do now that you have a bit more freedom?
1: You know, the first thing I think I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go walk out by the bay. It's a beautiful sunny day here, and uh, I look forward to getting some sunlight on me, and walking, and I love watching people. And it's one of the things I love about the markets here, on on the weekends, Mm -hmm. is going out, and not just what's offered at the market, but just watching the, the, the people there, the diversity of the people, uh, how they interact and I'm, I'm really looking forward to going and doing that.
0: That is Avatar producer John Landau and yes, for those who wondered, the Avatar crew paid for its own isolation. Now, if you missed it, Labour has published its list for the election and there are a couple of big things we want to note this evening. Q&A regular Dr Aisha Verrill is on the list at number 18, making it pretty likely she'll be an MP after the election. Dr Verrill has been on Q&A several times this year to offer her expertise as an epidemiologist. Health Minister David Clark is just one spot ahead of her at 17 on this year's list. Kia ora ōreni, what have you got for us on tonight?
4: Tēnā koe Jack, o tira tēnā yes, tonight, the housing market's taken a nosedive, with the number of properties sold last month dropping by almost a half on a year ago. The red tapers ripped off 11 new projects to get the economy rolling. The incredible story behind this image in the midst of a race riot. And a prominent voice during the COVID-19 lockdown, you just mentioned her name, Aisha Verrill, enters politics. Hōnō mai for today's stories and tomorrow's weather at 10.45.
0: Tēnā koe e hoa. Thank you. Ko mai. Get in touch. We're on Twitter at nzq a You can post on Facebook or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Who were the quasi-armed response units operating before the official trial? And why didn't we know about them? Then, colonial statues targeted by anti-racism protesters, a senior Māori MP with his thoughts.
3: The young Willie Jackson will probably gone and knocked all the heads off, but now that I'm a responsible uh, Labour minister... Responsible? <laughs> we want to engage in the process. We want Iwi and councils to, uh, to, to talk about this.
0: The police commissioner says he's committed to working with Māori in a very different way. Last week, Andy Costa ditched the idea of having armed response teams on the beat, weeks before a final report on the controversial trial was completed. One News Māori affairs reporter, Yvonne Tahana, got her hands-on documents under the Official Information Act that identified poor methodology and a lack of consultation with the communities who would be most affected. I asked the police commissioner if the whole trial was a mistake.
2: I think we have to acknowledge there are opportunities to step into that differently. Um, The basis for the decision and the big issue here was really about the style of policing that's appropriate for New Zealand. And consulting early and widely would have helped us to understand whether there would be public support for that way of working. So it was wrong? Uh, It's probably not that helpful for me to uh, judge or comment on the past as a new Commissioner, but my commitment going forward is to consult well on initiatives that go to the heart of our style of policing. Look, I think there were real risks about the pace at which we moved in, and our own people have um, acknowledged that that made some real challenges for having an academically robust evaluation, so that's a, a learning as well.
0: It's interesting to consider some of the information that has been released under OIAs in the last couple of weeks. The communications plan told senior police to justify the ARTs with the Christchurch mosque attacks. From your understanding, why did police respond to a white supremacist attack by putting armed police into predominantly Māori and Pacifica communities? Mm.
2: The the March 15 attack was, was part of the context but the uh, Overall intent with the armed response teams was to make sure we have the capability to deal with high end firearms incidents. Um, and those, the, the environment's been changing over some years, particularly around the prevalence of gang members carrying firearms. Um, I don't believe there was an intent to particularly target communities but I fully understand that was the way communities felt.
0: I mean, it, you, you say it was part of the, the, the justification mm. but I mean you've seen the same documents I've seen mm. and it clearly states that when police are asked about why we have ARTs they should say well the Christchurch mosque attacks happened, the situation for police on the ground in New Zealand has changed and yet the ARTs are rolled out in predominantly minority communities.
2: Mm from my perspective the biggest justification for thinking about frontline capability, tactical capability, is the change in the firearms environment over many years. It's a completely uh, different situation now than it was when I joined over 20 years ago and we just need to make sure we keep evolving in a way that our people can be safe and our communities can be safe.
0: On page 4 of the police mitigation risk plan which was produced two months into the trial police asserted it was likely the ARTs would be seen as disadvantaging maori should the trial have been scrapped at that point
2: I think at the moment it became clear we had some uh, real risks around certain communities that's an opportunity to reflect and you know one of the reasons that we brought forward um, the Announcement of the decision before we've got a fully peer-reviewed evaluation was the recognition it was causing distress in communities and the need to um, take care of that. So I think we always need to be open to feedback.
0: Well, that was in December. That's from the police's own mitigation risk plan. Of course, the trial didn't end until April. So should police have ended it much sooner? Because their own people were telling them this was causing damage.
2: I wasn't obviously privy to those, but on the face of it, without having examined all of those documents in that detail, um, there seems like there could have been an opportunity.
0: Why haven't you gone through that detail?
2: Uh, I said very clearly when I started in the role that I intended to await the evaluation. The trial had stopped at that time. Um, so, you know, we were basically looking at okay, what are the next steps around the evaluation? Um, I think events, feedback, the strength of feedback that we've had particularly following the death of George Floyd made it really clear we should act sooner.
0: So did you did you stop the trial because of George Floyd? Or no,
2: sorry, sorry I need to be clear the trial stopped on the 28th of April But you've ruled that out was that because
0: of George Floyd? Or because of no, it was factors? because
2: of community feedback but I think what we got was um, a much stronger feedback from the community following that event.
0: Has the trial damaged the relationship between Māori and the police?
2: It's, it's hard for me to gauge that at this point. We, we've taken soundings from a range of places. And what have they told you? Uh, so our own uh, Māori focus forum um, has been supportive of us um, taking a decision based on the best assessment from a policing perspective, and, and I was pretty clear where I saw that going. They haven't reflected damage to Māori trust and confidence, however I recognise that you know it's hard to get a single voice for communities uh, and we have done our best to communicate very clearly our intent for the future.
0: More than half of those arrested were Māori, including a number of 12-year-old Māori children who were arrested by ARTs. Do you owe Māori communities an apology?
2: Uh, so there are two parts to that. The, the first part in terms of the Māori representation is unfortunately representative of the proportion of Māori involved in the criminal justice system generally. But
0: keep in mind these were rolled out, and we were told they were rolled out as a response to the Christchurch terror attack. Not, nothing not, to do with yeah, Māori. I'm, not, I I'm not
2: defending that. Yeah. I'm not defending that. I'm just observing that the mix, sadly, of Māori in the criminal justice system is much higher than anyone would want Mm. and is not representative in terms of Maori young people I don't believe it's accurate to say that they were involved in arresting children that age I think the data says we they dealt with children that age for a range of different things
0: Do you owe Maori communities an apology?
2: Uh, I believe we've done the right thing in being very clear that this thing's not coming out any further. Um, If Māori communities believe an apology is due, um, I'm happy to mend whatever bridges need to be mended. That isn't the message that I've had. The message I've had is people are delighted that we've made the right decision here. Uh, And I think there are a range of other things where people are getting a sense of our commitment to working with Māori in a different way.
0: Through all of that, though, you you don't have a sense as to whether or not the relationship between police and Māori has been affected by this trial?
2: I think it's definitely been affected in some way. You know, the strength of feedback that we've had has been very significant. Damage? Uh, Well, What I would say is have a look at some other aspects of the way we've been working and we have demonstrated some significant commitment to Māori communities and I would point to the way we responded to iwi checkpoints. Um, We understood the uh, fear that many communities were feeling and we dealt with those in a way that was uh, very humane, very respectful, in the face of some pressure.
0: In those OIA documents, um, there are a couple of references to quasi-armed response vehicles that were already in action before the trial. What are quasi-armed response vehicles?
2: I believe we had some uh, situations where armed offender squad members were um, available through the course of a shift. They weren't routinely carrying firearms, but they have um, a level of capability that would be equivalent to what the armed response teams had. Um, So that that was something that had existed in, in some districts, had been uh, effective for getting a faster response to armed offenders squad type incidents
0: so are quasi armed response vehicles still in action today
2: no no i 've made it really clear when the trial came to an end that we cannot have um, anything that looks or feels like this by in another form, so I was really clear about that so
0: what then for your staff who, who who have made it very clear they are concerned mm. about their own safety and Mm. and you referenced it before the number of high powered firearms that are potentially still in the hands of criminals.
2: Yeah so we've recognized that there is a need to keep evolving um, the training uh, and skill experience available to the front line to deal with incidents. Um, Clearly we have been clear we're a generally unarmed police service so we're not going to have people routinely carrying firearms. We need to look at what Um, possibilities there are to keep evolving, and we need to make sure that, you know, when we have some idea of of what those options could look like, that we consult them. In the end, what what the evaluation uh, will show is the real value of armed response teams was um, the training of the staff involved and the experience of the staff involved in dealing with those situations. And that isn't so much to style as to capability.
0: But you have no idea how many illegal guns are on New Zealand streets, do
2: you? Well, no, nobody does. We, we haven't um, had a register in this country uh, since, I think, 1980s, thereabouts. So, can't be so, really very reassuring
0: for your frontline staff.
2: Well, we know that there are um, many firearms in New Zealand, um, that they have made their way into the wrong hands through... Um, burglaries and the like and so there is a risk and um, but our people are well trained and our people are well equipped so this is about an evaluation. They don't it's feel that
0: way do they? That they don't feel sufficiently equipped to be up against the number of illegal guns that are out there. That's why they wanted the ARTs in the first
2: place. I think it's fair to say there's a real mix of views out there on, on this topic so you can't really characterise it as a single thing but we need to always be happy that the capability that's there is appropriate.
0: How does your vision for the police and and the organisation's role in New Zealand differ from your predecessors?
2: I've continued the um, prevention first operating model that we've been working to uh, now for almost 10 years, which is really to say it's better not to be um, a victim of crime than to have a gold Mm. standard when you are one. Um, So that's our our operating model. Um, The vision is still to be the safest country. Um, and that increasingly um, looks like an achievable aspiration. Um, New Zealand is an awesome uh, country to be in uh, globally right now.
0: When you, when you consider some of the events overseas, what, what comparisons, if any, do you draw between um, the experiences of police in the United States and the experiences of police in New Zealand? Mm.
2: We are fortunate to enjoy a very different style of policing in New Zealand than overseas and recent events I think have accentuated the value of that mm-hmm. and it, I believe it's something we should hold on to um, very dearly. We need to take learnings from situations where uh, police services have, appear to have lost the consent of the public and ask ourselves how do we avoid ever getting in that situation.
0: That is Police Commissioner Andy Costa. Next, a senior Māori MP responds.
3: We don't want to see the police armed, Mm. but most of all we don't want to see our communities harmed and uh, sadly, as you know in terms of the facts, uh, uh, some of our communities, they look like they were targeted.
2: I believe we've done the right thing in being very clear that this thing's not coming out any further. Māori communities believe an apology is due. Um, I'm happy to mend whatever bridges need to be mended.
0: That's Police Commissioner Andy Costa speaking to me earlier. Labour's Māori caucus made it clear to Police Minister Stuart Nash they're against the routine arming of police. So do they want an apology for the trial? I asked caucus co-chair Willie Jackson.
3: Um, I know that Wally Homer is in there and he's been doing some fantastic work. Um, the reality is that Māori were absolutely offended by what happened uh, during that process. So a- as a Māori caucus, we made things clear to, to, our, Minister, mm. uh, to our Minister Stuart Nash. And um, uh, so if we've come to that and if the Commissioner is thinking about doing that, then uh, I say well done to him. Would you support it? Would I support an apology to Māori? Mm. I would. I, w- I would. I haven't asked the caucus. You've asked me on his party caucus No, that's, that's you yep. But you've heard... You've heard the anger in the communities and, and there's a Waitangi Tribunal claim going on but if, if our Commissioner is considering that, uh, you know, I think ably supported by Wally Homaha, I, I would support that.
0: It's very interesting to go through all of the documents that have been released <coughs> under the OIA. So the introduction of this trial wasn't a ministerial decision. There were serious flaws from the word go in the methodology. There was limited consultation at best. Should the trial have even started?
3: Well, we don't think so. We don't think so. We advised uh, against it. Uh, We were very clear about this. We don't want to see the police armed, Mm. But most of all, we don't want to see our communities harmed. And uh, sadly, as you know, in terms of the facts, uh, uh, some of our communities, they look like they were targeted. I don't understand it. We don't understand it. Because there's been some really good progress uh, that the police have made since Tūhoe. I mean, Tūhoe, we, we had... That, since the Tūhoe raids. Since the Tūhoe raids. And, but again, they're making independent decisions. Uh, and I think one of the problems is, is that they're not working with their mm. Māori leadership, uh, who, who are part of the, the police. I was involved with that Māori leadership in terms of eritana, Tafifirangi. Uh, Dame Nader Glavich (coughs) um, you know, people who know our community, they should consult with them all the time Mm. because what this is about is about partnership and and we have forged, Maori have forged a reasonable partnership with police in the last few years um, and we want to continue that but you can't take a few steps forward and then go backwards, you know and sadly that's happened with the police trials but I think if we can put it behind us and forge a partnership going forward we, we could do well.
0: The Police Minister Stuart Nash says he doesn't believe there is systemic racism within the New Zealand police, but there is unconscious bias. What do you think?
3: Well, I think all the Māori caucus believe that uh, there is systemic uh, racism, but uh, I think Stuart also talked about if there was any racism, uh, he would look to stamp it out. So, you know, we probably have a a slight difference, but that's the wonderful thing about Labor. We've got diverse views. He's a great supporter of Māori, but we're a caucus who know from our history, uh, that there has been uh, systemic racism, there has been institutionalised racism, but we also know that the police are making a strong effort in terms of turning things around. And uh, Commissioner Bush, did that when he set up the um, Māori Leadership uh, uh, Commission. A- and this minister, Minister Costa, is also doing the same thing. He's saying some excellent things uh, uh, with regards to Māori. And, uh, and, and in terms of systemic racism, mm. I don't think there's any any doubt about that. But uh, doesn't mean that we can't turn the situation around. We're in an,
0: in an interesting moment. At the moment, aren't we? You know, we we have seen again large protests in New Zealand over (coughs) the weekend following the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. Do you support? Pulling down some colonial statues in New Zealand. Well,
3: well, for us, for our Maori caucus, it's not just about pulling down the the statues. It's about having the conversation. We need to have the conversation. You know, the young Willie Jackson will probably have gone and knocked all the heads off. But now that I'm a responsible uh, Labour minister, responsible, <laughs> we want to we want to engage in the process. We want iwi and councils to, uh, to to talk about this. I mean, we we. The, the, the statues represent all the worst things in terms mm. of colonisation. They re- represent the oppression of our people. They represent racism. And our story's not being told. Our story's going to be told because we're bringing back history in terms of, of the schools and our Prime Minister's announced that. And on top of that, we, we, we're, we're putting out our own monuments. Dame Finna Cooper, we launched her last last year. Oh, sorry, earlier this year. And we want to be able to do that. We want the full history of, of this country to be told, not just celebrating Colonisers who, who created, you know, created havoc and mayhem amongst our people. If you do
0: then support taking down some statues. Where do you start and stop? How do you decide which ones stay and which ones? That
3: stay? conversation has to be. There's got to be a conversation mm. in terms of iwi and in terms mm. of uh, councils. I mean, you know, some some of our iwi mm. some don't want to take them down. Me personally, I like to see them all. I like to see them all mm. come down. But there has to be a mature conversation and, and the full story in terms of te ao Māori has to be mm. told. We've got to celebrate some of our people. You know, when, they, when you talk about tainui and all that, you've got this guy Nixon in Otahu who, uh, who's got a big statue. But where's the statue in terms of Te Pui Where's the statue in terms of Dame Te Ata? Where's the statue in terms of Eva Rickard? We don't celebrate Manawahine, we just celebrate, celebrate some murderous coloniser.
0: Let me ask this then. Has New Zealand always been a country that has stood against racism and discrimination?
3: New Zealand has led the way. Has it Uh, always been a country? uh, Well, I think New Zealand has If you go back to 1981, New Zealand, uh, you know, New Zealand was... Groups uh, mm. in New Zealand were leading the way in terms mm. of the fight for racism. Prime you, Minister yeah? said this
0: morning, "We've always been a country that has stood against racism and discrimination."
3: Oh, the Prime Minister's not far off the mark. In fact, she's probably she's off to, the mark. But. No, 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 she's not wrong because she, she. If you go back to '81 mm. and look at the protests in terms of what happened with regards to apartheid and all that, this country was saluted in terms of its fight for black people and uh, and, yet, and
0: the abandonment of apartheid. And yet, we, you think we still have systemic racism? Well, in systemic our
3: racism is. is is everywhere.
0: OK, let me, let me ask about broadcasting. Your colleague Nanaima Huta is, of course, leading a proposal that appears to group all Māori news into one TV channel. Here she is being interviewed on Marae at the weekend
4: no
3: room for competition in Māori media? There's a lot of room for collaboration and I hope that's the conversation that people want to engage in. I know as challenging as this uh, discussion document is, everyone in the Mori media sector knows that we can't stay where we are, we need to move, and they're talking about collaboration.
0: What do you make of the proposal?
3: Well, you know I can't really talk about the proposal. I'm not the minister. I'm not the minister in charge, Jack. It's a discussion document at the moment. And uh, I think my views are well documented. So I'm not about... And what are those views? Well... Check, it, check them out. I believe you've read some of them, uh, Jack. Please, be, for, for anyone sure. who hasn't read them, t- tell us all <laughs> no, they are. Look, no, I, 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 seriously, I don't want to undermine a minister who's put in a lot of okay, work OK, here.
0: OK, let me, let me ask some basic questions then. Just, just We can speak in, in generalisms, if you like. Is a plurality of voices important in Māori news? Mm.
3: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And I think the Minister would agree with me there with regards to that too.
0: The Minister has proposed a single Māori news service.
3: What she has put up is a discussion document. There's been no... uh, There's no final sign-off on this. People are uh, a little bit... I I hear there's a little bit of anger out there from some of your mates out there. You're learning Māori from, uh, Jack. And, uh, um, but... The final decisions with regards to that have not been made and she's been provocative Mm. and they've been provocative. That's what it's all about. As I said, look, this is an area that I've been passionate about for years but I also have a respect for a minister who's put a lot of hard work in and I'm not about to undermine her on this show.
0: Would it be good or bad for Te Reo Māori revitalisation to have all Māori news in one place?
3: Are you trying to trick me now, Jack? No, there's a trick question. There's a simple but question. you know, that's one of the recommendations of the, um, yeah. of the paper.
0: I also know I that a lot more people watch te karade, for example, than watch Māori TV. You know,
3: when te started in 1980, so one thing I do know is that uh, having the real um, on mainstream has been incredibly important in terms of the development of the language for people like yourself, for, mm. people, for people who love the language. So that's one thing I know, someone like Scotty Morrison has played a huge part in our lives, you know, in, in terms of Te karere, and, of course, Watia, where he's uh, been overpaid for far too long.
0: <laughs> what, would be, what would be the impact, then, of losing programmes such as Te Karere, Marae and the Hui?
3: Well, I don't think any of those... You know, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. I think that our minister has put up a paper that is uh, provocative, that's upset a number of people in the industry. uh, But she's saying, "Well, well, what are your what are your ideas? Uh, um, What could we do better?" There is no there are no final decisions on on this. Our people are passionate, as you know. You've got to know them a little bit in the last couple of years, the last few years, in terms of your quest, in terms of the deal, and they they don't take no prisoners, you know. And so we understand that, but. This is a discussion document and there 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 have been no final decisions made with regards to it.
0: Willie Jackson. We will wrap up after the break with some inspiration from this week's One Thing.
4: As individuals, we need to summon up the courage to have the difficult conversations when those close to us espouse racism or hate.
0: Kia ora e te our, we- our one thing this week is from Narain Jana, a member of the Khadija Leadership Network, a group of Muslim women leaders. What's the one thing she would change to make Aotearoa New Zealand a better place?
4: I'm Noraine Jana from the Khadija Leadership Network, and the one thing I would do to make New Zealand a better place is hold ourselves accountable to eliminating racism and discrimination. It is a complex issue that requires critical reflection and action. At from everyone at all levels, at the individual and the policy level. Media need to represent minorities uh, as individuals with whole stories rather than homogenous stereotypes. Um, Leaders need to genuinely represent all communities by lifting up underrepresented voices like women, ethnic minorities, and Muslims. Government needs to take into account discrimination and hate against minorities at all levels of decision-making. As individuals, we need to summon up the courage to have the difficult conversations when those close to us espouse racism or hate, not just once, but every day. I know we can do better for our minority communities. Let's lead by example.
0: Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and ngā mihiki a Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey tēra wiki. We will see you next Monday evening. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.